Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Live around the world on the internet at MichaelDukesShow.com, where you'll find links to the audio-only podcast, the audio-only stream, rather, the podcast, social media sites, and everything else. And, of course, live around the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or FM translator. Good morning and welcome to it, the Monday edition of the Michael Duke Show. It is, uh, oof, man, you know, it was hard. Life is hard sometimes. Oh, it was a little tough this morning. Get things rolling. But we are up and ready to go for this, the first uh, first full week of broadcast for July. Um Last week it was uh, it was nice it was nice to have the the short week and the long weekend but we're back to it right now ready to go in and see exactly what is happening and going on today we've got some uh, of course all the weekend headlines to talk about and there are some interesting developments in everything that's going on out there so we're going to talk about that and then um we are going to pick it up with uh, potentially two guests this morning um Julie Colomb the representative from Anchorage uh been trying to get her back on the program to talk about um childcare as she was quoted in an article in the I don't remember if it was the ADN or the Alaska Beacon right now, but she was quoted as an article as being one of the legislators that uh, said that that was one of their priorities. And uh, I've been trying to get her on the program, and she reached out to me this over the weekend and uh, said she was interested. And then, um, but I told you guys, I don't, I'm kind of unplugged on the weekends. And so I didn't see her reply. Uh, so, uh, which came, but I didn't reply to her reply. So it's on me is what I'm saying. She may or may not be attending this morning's program. We'll see. We'll see what happens here in the next, uh, in the next, uh, 15 minutes or so, whether or not she shows up. If she does, that'll be fantastic. If not, it's not on her. It's on me because I was, man, don't try and contact me on the weekend. I'm just saying. It was nice of her to, it was nice of her to reply, but I got to tell you, I am not on the, uh, <clears throat> I am not watching my phone. In fact, I can, I could lose my phone for half the weekend and I would not even know. I mean, it would be, it could be hours or maybe even a day before I'd be like, where is that thing? I don't know what I did with it. Um, anyway, um, in hour two of the broadcast today, we're going to be talking with, uh, our favorite educational expert, Sarah Montalbano. She'll be joining us from the Alaska Policy Forum, and we're going to be talking with her about the governor's vetoes on the BSA and what her analysis says and some other thing, uh, uh, other things as well. 
Uh, oh, looks like uh, Julie is, um, uh, let me say this, sent you uh, a link, uh, another email. Cannot talk and type at the same time. It's one of my few failings. I cannot talk and type about something else at the same time. So uh, anyway, Sarah Montalbano is going to come on board and talk with us. She hopefully will also have some analysis or a little bit of thought on this piece, which I think I talked about last week. Did I? I think I talked about this last week. Um, I know that I was going to, but you know how it is. You get people calling in and you get waylaid and you get sidetracked on something else. I think uh, I talked about the... uh, New study in the article in the Alaska Beacon about the study that said to hire and keep teachers in remote Alaska, the school districts need to pay a lot more, um, which I think um, is, again, just part and parcel of the whole movement here to talk about how we're going to get into that. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but that's one of the articles that we're going to try and talk with uh, – uh, Sarah Montalbano about. We're also going to talk about uh, the effect of the BSA and some other things as well. So uh, there's some AFP stuff going on too. So she's going to talk about that as well in our two. Um, all right. So that is uh, how the show was going to roll today. Uh, I think it's. Uh, I think it should be a good one. Um, so hopefully Julie Colomb, I believe so. That's a that 90% possibility. And uh, so we'll see. I but, uh, Brian said I did talk about it. Uh, we all laughed and moved on. Okay. Well, we may di- we may dive a little bit deeper into that because hey, Ma, we're in the papers. <laughs> there's more and more. There's more and more. Um, uh, you know, focus on Alaska, <clears throat> and they're really trying to beat this drum on uh, how poorly we're funding education. That's kind of what's going on. The remember we talked last week about Carluck and how Carluck had thrown out that viral media post uh, or the post, the media post that I guess went viral where they were looking for two families with three to four children to live in Carluck for a year, all expenses paid. Um, well, unsurprisingly, when you got that kind of offer, we will pay for you to move here. We will pay all your expenses. We will give you a house. We will give you a job. We will do all these things. Unsurprisingly, they had a lot of responses. They received about 5,000 responses from across the U.S. 5,000 responses. They're a little overwhelmed now with all the different things. But the big thing is, is that it made it all the I mean, it made such a stir that the Washington Post uh, actually wrote an article about this, that how unusual this was the other day. Uh, and of course, this was an opportunity for the pro-government side of the equation to get involved and to start touting all the uh, t- start touting all the stuff. Uh, they quote in the uh, in the article, they quote the pr- uh, president of the Kodiak Island Borough School District Board of Education, Dave Johnson, um, and they. They start talking about, well, this is not surprising that they need to do this. I can't fault anyone for trying an outside-the-box approach to improve outcome for their kids, which, I mean, I don't want to seem heartless, 
But this, of course, anytime you say something like that, you immediately follow it up with some comment that seems heartless to somebody. But my question is, if a community cannot uh, cannot attract enough people without doing something like this, is does the community have a long-term prospect of being able to support itself and be on its own? Or is it strictly to maintain the source of government funding that they have coming in there to keep them rolling? Communities come and communities go across the United States. It's always been that way. I mean, you have ghost towns for a reason, right? Because they were boom and bus cycles and all these kind of things. Now, in Alaska, it's a little different because we are even more remote. But the question still stands strong. I mean, the city of China, outside of Fairbanks, used to be a bustling community. Now it does not exist anymore. Now it's more of, a, of an area or a feeling than it is a city. Uh, I mean, we could see that across the country. Should we keep artificially propping up all these communities if they cannot self-sustain? I know that seems cold and heartless. I'm simply asking the question. Um, anyway, uh, Dave Johnson quoted in this paper, and this is the Washington Post, by the way, the Washpo. Um, anyway, he, he goes, uh, um, he, he goes on to talk about how, uh, school districts in the state have faced flat funding for six years, which is not actually the case. The BSA has faced flat funding for six years. There's been no increase to the BSA in six years. But the funding for education has actually, the one-time funding, has actually been significant. But you see that they just never pick up on that. They, it is a nuanced, this is how they make the argument. It's a nuanced argument. They talk about flat funding for education, which means that the BSA, the base student allocation, or the formula-driven funding has remained static for six years. But they don't talk about the increases, the forward funding, the overall one-time increases and everything else. We are spending hundreds of millions of dollars more than we did six years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Um, Dave Johnson said that uh, the governor appears, quote, downright hostile to public education. <laughs> and, I mean, they're quoted. He's just quoted so profusely in this article. Um <clears throat> The uh, teachers, uh, teachers, the teacher shortage that's gripping the nation, because, again, it's not just Alaska having a teacher shortage. It is across the country, but they act as if it's only happening in Alaska because the well, here's what Johnson said. The teacher shortage that's gripping the nation is heightened in Alaska because of the lack of a pension program, which is untrue. They have a pension program. It's just not the one that you want. The lack of a pension program and, quote, criminally low salaries, unquote. So you can already see that the, you know, they are either playing the news media like a fiddle or the news media is working hand in glove with the pro-government crowd because this is the only narrative that's getting out there. That. You know, yes, we have an education and a teacher shortage across the nation. But in Alaska, it's only worse because our governor hates education, because we have criminally low salaries, and we don't have a pension with the lack of a pension program. Which, again, oh, and the fact that we have not had an increase in education in six years. It's been flat funded for six years. All of which are untrue. 
But, you know, who am I to talk about this kind of stuff? Just some radio show host that doesn't. I mean, a five-minute a five minute investigation would discover that this are, and there is no other side on this discussion. Uh, this whole thing on car luck and everything else, there's really, there's no counterpoint to be offered on this. Uh, and again, my counterpoint comes back to the fact of if it requires government intervention to stay afloat and to stay alive, does that make sense in the long run? In a community of a hundred, they are literally doing this for two students. That's currently what they have. The article here says the two students currently there, a brother and sister who are 11 and 10, this would allow them to have peers and a certified teacher. So you're going to move two families of up to 10 people, uh, 12 people up to Carluck. You're going to put them up, room them, board them, hire them, do all that kind of stuff for the two children. It, I mean, you know, I it, it, does that make sense? I, I know there's a lot of nostalgia, my hometown, the whole thing, that everything else. But in the long run, does it make sense? I I just I don't even know what to say. All right, uh, we're coming up on the break. Um, I believe Julie Colomb is going to be joining us here in just a moment. We will return. The Michael Duke Show. Oh, yeah, Julie's here in the green room right now. All right, we're ready to go. Taking a break. We'll be back with more. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Back right after this. Don't go anywhere. What is that? Common sense. Regularly heard on American radio. Julie Colomb is our guest in the, oh, she's in the green room. I'm ready to go. Are you ready? Shall we do this thing? I'm, I'm waiting for the coffee to kick in. Hello. Uh, and good morning, Julie. How are you? Hi, Michael. How are you doing? I'm, it's early this morning. It's Well, you know, Monday comes a little early every week. I just got to <laughs> say, sometimes Monday comes a little bit early. Yeah, it yeah. Is, this is a little earlier than you normally appear on the program. I appreciate you calling me back and again, or uh, emailing me back, and I apologize for not, uh, like I said, I unplug on the weekends. I'm lucky if I look at my phone for most of the weekend, because uh, I don't want to see the damn thing. I'd pitch it out the window if it didn't cost so much. Um, but uh, I appreciate you uh, coming on board and joining us. This well, to be, to be fair, Michael, you did you did email me earlier in the week, and I was a little disconnected from my email. So, <laughs> well, that's good. I mean, it's good. It's good to disconnect. People don't understand, you know, that it's, it, man, uh, I discovered that I was going to say 10 years ago, but it's actually probably closer to 15 years ago. I quit watching stuff. 
I used to be a news junkie. I used to do all that. I mean, I used to just try and stay plugged into everything. And my wife is like, you are so angry all the time. And I'm like, why? She goes, I just, you're so angry all the time. And I just discovered that if I, uh, on the weekends especially, if I just turned everything off and went about my weekend and did whatever I do for leisure or my honeydew list or whatever – watch movies, play D&D with my kids, whatever it was, I discovered that I was a much happier, a happier human being. And so uh, I took yeah. that phone, the phone, the phone, my phone is literally on. If you're trying to get a hold of me on the weekend, I probably won't answer unless I happen to be looking at my phone because it's either on silent or on vibrate. It does not ring on the weekend. So yeah. uh, anyway, I appreciate you. That's a long story, long, long winding way to do, to agree with you. Basically say we don't need to be there. Um, yeah, you can't stay plugged into that stuff, says Michael. It makes you miserable. It, I mean, a lot of it does. It just, you know, just people who are constantly, I just watch people who are all the time, like, you know, this all the time. And you're just like, I don't care about my phone uh, or that much. I don't care about people enough to not, if they're not with me, they're not that important in the moment or kind of thing, you know, right? <laughs> well, it's really hard as a legislator. I'm definitely more in tune with the news and things as than I was before, but it is important to get unplugged. Well, look, I work in the whole sphere of news and everything else. I guarantee you, if something important happens on the weekend, I'll hear about it. I don't have to be glued to my phone to know what's going on. Anyway, uh, it's going to be interesting. So you were quoted in the paper. And like I said earlier, I can't remember if it was the ADN or if it was the beacon on this discussion about child care and you were mm-hmm. quoted as being there was two two legislators you and uh tobin who were quoted as being no it was it you and tobin or you and julie uh, jenny armstrong, Jeff, jenny yeah, armstrong right jenny armstrong as being the people who were the most concerned about uh child care and i thought that was an interesting you know dichotomy between the two people who were the most interesting and uh, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that and, and get through that. But I'm also, um, you know, there's there's lots of things going on here. You could see the handwriting on the wall. Look, you're a numbers gal. Did You saw this thing about the Carluck, right, where Carluck was inviting people to come up. Do you have any thoughts on that before we jump into a completely different vein? But I because I was I'm looking at this and going, that doesn't seem sustainable on the long term. If you have to have. The government funding to keep the place going and it's cheaper to hire people to move there and pay for all that. That just doesn't seem like that's a great long term solution in, in you know. Yeah, well, hmm. How do I want to come? That's that's most of Alaska. Yeah, well, that's Mike. I mean, exactly. I mean, are we looking for more dependency or less dependency? This looks like we are fostering or furthering the dependency on that state funding if like i said there are many places in america in the lower 48 where they've just disappeared that the community couldn't sustain itself the the base went away whatever happened and it just disappeared and we seem like we're going it's a whole nother show i can tell you right now this is a whole nother show's worth of discussion all right we got to jump into it we're gonna get back to it, Julie Colum is our Colum is our guest. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. Public enema number one. Oh wait, sorry. Uh, enemy, public enemy number one, which makes more sense. 
On the other hand, he's a little bit of a pain in the uh, Michael Duke show. I'm pain in the what? Uh, welcome back. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, <laughs> free-thinking radio. Joining us on the phone right now, or not on the phone, it's new technology. Vo- joining us via video from a secret, undisclosed location, Representative Julie Colomb joins us uh, to talk about, uh, well, the state of the state. Um, and But specifically, we wanted to talk about this issue of child care because this became one of the hot, uh, to me, kind of one of the surprise hot-button issues. No- going into the session, we knew that education was going to be a big deal. We knew that the... Uh, pensions and the defined benefits were going to be a big deal because those were all stated up ahead of time. And as the session started, though, all of a sudden, this idea that child care um, was, uh, became this hot-button issue because child care obviously has a trickle-down effect into the employment and the economy and many other things. Uh, but to some people, the answer to a problem with child care is immediate governmental intervention. Government needs to go in there. And then, of course, we see this series of stories about how the main thing holding up child care um, is government, that the to become a state certified child care, I mean, is especially for rural communities. Anyway, there was an article that was talking about this, and it was quoted in the article that Jenny Armstrong, on the one side of the political spectrum, is a proud, you know, that's her big hot button issue. And on the other side, surprisingly to me, was Julie Columbia, because we hadn't talked about this. So I asked her to come on board and talk with us about it, and she joins us now. Whew, man, that was a long-winded way to introduce you. <laughs> Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Mike? Good. I'm just here to talk this morning, apparently. I just can't shut my pie hole. So, uh, Julie, let's talk You know, talk a little bit here about your thoughts on child care in Alaska, because as a, as a small government, small L libertarian, the idea that the government is now going to intervene in the marketplace yet again to provide some kind of state or governmental funding to child care when they, in my opinion, seem to be standing in the way in a lot of this stuff seems counterintuitive. I, I guess I'll give the floor to you and let you describe the problem in your mind. Yeah, so thanks for reaching out. Um, this has been um, a little bit of a contentious issue on um, my side of the aisle, um, and people are confused why I'm I'm sponsoring. I have a bill, and I've been talking about it. And basically, what how what it came how it came about was I didn't go to Juno to solve this issue. Like this wasn't. I knew that there was childcare. Um, I, I won't call it a crisis. There's an issue with childcare. It became more intense uh, through COVID. And so when I went down there, a lot of the uh, businesses in this industry that would have meetings with me, um, and I'd say, you know, you know, what are the, some of the issues in your industry? They were all saying daycare uh, because everybody's having a problem with workforce. Um, and daycare was seemed to be um, really ramped up as an issue to getting their workers to work. Um, and I, and I, you know, I was like, wow, that's, you know, not something new, but it seems like it's more intense. And then when the governor did his state of the state speech and he wanted, you know, at the end when he said he wanted to be a pro-life, pro-family state, um, you know, I started putting things together because, uh, look, so my, I'm pro-life. And so when I look at that, uh, I take that really seriously. It's not just um, anti-abortion. It's pro-family, pro-life. And I just thought about it. It It's like if I had, 
if, if a woman was pregnant and she went that route because she just didn't think she could make it to have the baby, then that's just, that's, that's a, you know, to make that decision on finances is terrible. So I also have a lot of um, family members and people around me that are struggling with daycare. So it kind of all uh, coalesced towards the beginning of the session. And, um, and the more I looked into it, the more I saw how it was affecting our economy and how it was affecting families. And I don't think it's any secret that our statistics on for our children are just terrible on suicide, addiction, and 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 depression. So uh, that's that's why I jumped on board. Now, uh, Representative Armstrong has a young child, and so she had just gone gone through trying to get daycare for her child, and so it's something really near and dear to her heart. I have four children, and just to let your audience know, uh, I was a stay-at-home mom for a long, long time. My husband and I uh, lived on one income. It was not easy, but it was it didn't make sense for me to go to work. I, we we right. would have been paying so much in daycare that it, right. it didn't get anywhere. And I and I enjoyed staying home. I I homeschooled for a long time and and eventually went back into the workforce as the kids got older. But I think the struggle that I've had, uh, especially with some of the legislators, is their understanding of what families are going through now so i you know my we raised our kids 30 years my kids are in their 30s right so back then there was um there were stay-at-home moms we swapped babysitting all the time uh i took in for a long time i took in neighborhood kids and ran my own in-home daycare um and we kind of had each other's backs and now you look at my my cul-de-sac no one's home during the day. Right. There is no backup. And most Alaskans aren't close to family. And so it's it's really, it's a different environment than when I raised my kids. And yeah. it's uh, unfortunate. I wish um, there could be a stay-at-home parent, but with the economy the way it is, the inflation, it's it, it, people are getting pinched. And so they got to go to work. And so what are you going to do? You know, say, oh. well, you know, those are your kids deal with your life. It, it's not working and it's not uh, fair to try to say, well, you know, if, if you have to, if you have kids, you, you're you just going to have to find your own uh, babysitter. It's 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 just not sustainable. And so a lot of the legislators uh, my age and older, you know, had a different experience with their family you know, where community came in and, you know, family, you know, maybe a family member came and helped watch the kids and you made it work. And, and in people in those situations, they're, they're blessed. Uh, my grandchildren, um, uh, the other grandmother watches those kids a lot. And so we're blessed to do that. But there's a lot of people, not just low-income people, but middle-class people that just, they can't afford um, the daycare. And so I started looking into it and, you know, being a capitalist, I was like, wow, this is a really broken business model. Like last, last week when you guys were talking about it, you were talking about market-based solutions, which is, um, where I came, uh, how I approach it. It's like, well, I, I'm not for, um, the government to 
fix this, but they have to be part of the solution because like you said last week, they're part of the problem. Right. And so well, you can't I, have you, know, you can't have a market based solution when the government is already intervening in the market. I mean, that was the whole the irony of that article talking about how <clears throat> you know, rural Alaska was struggling the worst with child care. And it right. all had to do with the fact that they couldn't get regulatory approval for the child care. I mean, if the legislature was going to work on something, that's what they I mean, you were talking about taking in kids from the neighborhood. Were you a state certified daycare worker at that point or were you just doing it? I mean, that's the thing. You're going to create a whole outlaw underground of people <laughs> who are literally, you know, putting their kids in with other friends because. That's the only thing you can do. I mean, I agree. Yeah. Things have changed. Look, I'm still a one-income household. My wife has not worked outside the home in 25 years, something like that, almost 30 years. And that's fine. That's a decision that we made. Has it always been roses and 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 champagne? Absolutely not. You know, I raised five kids. I've still got three of them kids at home. You know, they're still, uh, they're still some of them are still here. I'm still supporting them. It's not always easy, but at some point you got to realize that having government come in and try and fix it. I mean, it's the old Ronald Reagan. Government is not the solution to the problem. Government in a lot of ways is the problem in this mm -hmm. case, putting all those hurdles up there. Right. And I, it, yeah, I didn't get licensed back, back then. Um, just because, uh, well, I didn't want to go through the paperwork. I didn't want to go through all that. I knew my kid, my house was safe for kids and these people I knew and, and, and people could still do that, you know? So it's not that, um, you know, I've been appointed to the task daycare task force and it's not that we're, you know, cracking down on in-home daycare, but, um, right now the government is already involved in daycare this is nothing new there's subsidies there's vouchers there's regulations there's see, that's, that's the point see that is the point right there all these governmental hoops are as if you want a piece of the governmental pie to do those right. things if you decided to do it on your own and charge 30 bucks a day or whatever you charge per child for the child to stay there at your daycare, I don't even know. That's a fictitious number. I just plucked that out of the air. But whatever it is, if it's 10 bucks a day per child, that's what you're charging, and you're fine with that, then you can do it. And so, again, my question becomes, why do we need more governmental intervention and interference in those spaces? Well, I – well, okay, so – the way I look at it, daycare has to get it has to be subsidized to make it affordable. Okay, so let's say you're doing a daycare um, and you're charging, you know, fifty bucks a day for twenty days a month. That's six thousand dollars. That's twelve thousand dollars a year for a family to pay. It's and it, fifty bucks is really low. Most people spend about eleven thousand dollars for one kid in a, in a year. So, you know, if you're lower to middle, lower um, class family, it's just, it's, it's unaffordable. So what happens is, and you talked about the underground, there's already an underground daycare network, right? So you're just gonna go on Craigslist and try to find somebody who watches kids, or, you know, you're gonna, the, the standard, um, is going to be lower because you just you, you got to go to work. And so it, when I look at it, 
I, I don't see it unless, you know, maybe the task force will come up with something, but I don't see how it stands as a business on its own because most businesses will either co uh, cut the cost of their business or raise their prices. Well, you, you can't cut the cost if most of your costs are labor and you have a per child or adult child ratio you have to meet. Um, and, you know, you can't, if you raise it, uh, people can't afford it. So I'm not saying that government is is the only one to subsidize. My, my When I look at it and when I've talked to businesses in Juneau, I'm like, well, they're your workers. Where is the private, where's private industry in this? Because there's lots of businesses that um, can and have, you know, put a daycare center in their building. Obviously, they're bigger businesses, uh, corporations. And in my bill that I have, I have a, a tax break for those who help their workers with daycare. But there are solutions where the private the private industry needs to partner um, with their workers and try to get some help to have their kids um, taken care of in a, in a good quality you know setting. It's not. Um, I, I don't right now. I can't tell you where I see government bidding. Uh, in that I, I would rather incentivize um, churches to go back to having daycare in their buildings, churches that are empty all week. They used to have, and I actually used a, a daycare for a short time here in South Anchorage. Um, it was a, it was a church and it was small. It was like, you know, 15 kids. My grandchildren did that too in a church in Eagle River. And it was, it was great. So there's, there's churches, there's, um, uh, private industry, there's a, a way to try to incentivize in-home uh, daycare. So there's other solutions and why, you know, they asked me to be on the task force. And I just think you need a conservative voice in that group. Sure. Because sure. otherwise it's going to be uh, government funded. That's all it's going to be. Right now it's already government right. funded. I don't, I don't want you to think that I'm being critical of you for supporting this or being, I <laughs> wanted to get your take on this. Yep. I think you're right. I think we need a conservative voice on there. Maybe you and I don't agree necessarily on the whole outcome or anything else, but I, I agree that we need a voice on there. Um, I also want to talk a little bit about the danger of governmental involvement in childcare um as well and maybe maybe people see that maybe people don't but we're coming up on the break and i want to uh we're going to take it and then we're going to come back with julie colomb and we'll discuss that here in just a few moments the michael duke show common sense liberty based free thinking radio we'll be back with more in just a moment don't go anywhere <laughs> It's the Michael Dukes Show. Bum, 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 bum. Why not take a quick break? Be right back. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. All right. Julie Colomb is our guest. Let me unmute her here there for a second. Julie, here is, I, I did a show about 15 years ago. I did an episode of the show that probably still remains one of the most unpopular episodes with some people. Uh, I got so much hate mail from that episode. Uh, and specifically what I did was I took some, I did the math 
And so you'll have to forgive me because, again, that was 15 years ago. But we broke it down and we talked about, okay, if there's two people working in the home and they're making the average median income, then here's how much they would pay. Here's what they're, you know, here's what the taxes would be and here's what the thing would be. And and I didn't even go into I didn't care which one worked, but I basically showed that you if you had two income, a two income household where they were both employed with the cost of additional insurance, wear and tear, meals out, you know, uh, clothing, hair, all this kind of stuff that you would normally do, plus the plus the child care on top of that, you know, if they had 2.1 children, it's $700 a month in child care, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I did the math and I showed that it just does not pay to have a second job unless you are making $100,000 a year. It makes no sense because it pushed you into another tax bracket and all. I mean, it was you could save money simply by staying at home and watching your own children, raising your own children, doing some kind of home-based thing or whatever. There were so many other things and I mean, it got some serious hate, but I'm still not wrong about it. That's the thing. I mean, you stayed home and, and raised your children. My wife has stayed home and raised our children. No, it's not always been pleasant. No, it's not always been easy. But it ca I cannot imagine what it would have cost us in the long run to have to do something like that with five children, you know, probably three of them at any given time needing child care. I mean, at that point, I mean, you're right. If you've got a couple kids and it costs you 1500 bucks a month to have those kids in child care, how do you swing that on top of everything else? And see, that's that's what we're missing here. We're, we're missing the, the I guess it's the opportunity cost is what I'm talking about. Well, so what's missing is oh, like in Anchorage is 33 percent of the households are single parent households. So, yeah, there's there's um, there's two income in, situations where uh, if they did the math, they would see that financially it's not working. I mean, that's what my husband and I, we were sitting at the kitchen table and was like, this is not working. You know, it, someone's got to come home. And at the time my husband was making more money, had more benefits. And so, and I, I didn't mind staying home, but if you're a single parent working, what's going to happen is they're going to, if you want, they'll stay home and they'll take government assistance. I I'm, I'm not sure that's the incentive we want to give people um, at some in the rural areas, like in Nome, it's fifty percent single parent households. So, it, it, you know, I think for a lot of people, maybe they don't do the math. Maybe they just both want to work. They love their jobs or whatever, um, and it's it's hard for them to get daycare. I think that's a different situation than um, single parent homes, low income homes, foster care um kids there there's still a need even if all the parents <laughs> dual income parents in alaska thought okay well one of us is going to stay home um we're still going to have the issue it, it's it, we have too many i mean i don't i don't like the fact that there's a lot of people raising children by themselves but that's the that's what right. we're living in well and, and and again i think this is indicative of a deeper problem with the whole single income households for most of them i mean I, you're right and i and i see the point at the same time i start thinking this is part of our problem with the single income you know with the single parent households that needs to we need to find a way to try and help and fix that as well because it, it you really need the two parents to be able to 
uh, you know, give it a full, uh, there's all kinds of stuff. That's a whole, again, a whole nother show on the single parenting household. And like I said before, I don't care which one stays home. I don't care if it's like you said, whoever's right. making the most money, if mom's making the most money, great. If dad's making the most money, great. But I think those are conversations that should be had by dual income households to try and fix a lot of that would actually probably take a lot of the pressure off the system. If the dual, well, yeah. if, if the dual income households kind of, uh, you know, fix that thing. Yeah. And I, I remember when we were raising the kid, like the kids were, were, would come home and say, you know, so-and-so's going to Hawaii for the, uh, for Christmas uh, or so-and-so's got four wheelers and they're going to the cabin. And, uh, you know, we just had to pass up on all that. Uh, we just couldn't, we didn't have the toys yeah. back then. Yeah. We didn't have all the, the vacations. Um, we have, we have a cabin now it took us almost 40 years to get one and, right. uh, and both. So, yeah, I mean, that, you, like last week you said, you know, some of this is life choices and I understand that you have to make your choices on where you're going to, you know, spend your money, spend your time. Yeah. Uh, Julie Colomb is our guest, uh, representative from Anchorage. Uh, we're talking about, uh, the childcare issue in the state of Alaska and governmental intervention. What does it mean? What does it say? Uh, we're going to talk in my mind about maybe some of the dangers of that as we go forward here, and we will continue the Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio. Like and share, like and follow, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube. Here we go. Okay, uh, welcome back to the program. Continuing now with Representative Julie Colomb, we're talking about child care uh, in the state. She's just given a lot of good reasons why it at least should be discussed, it should be looked at, why there should be a conservative voice on that. Um, but the, the bottom line to me is this. Uh, I see a bit of a danger in this. And maybe I'm being a little bit chicken little. Maybe I'm... Uh, you know, but I'm always trying to think of the long term and the unintended consequences of any action, especially when it comes to government intervention in the free market or in the private market. We've already seen the problem with government and intervention and what's happening and how it's basically mutating the market now on child care. Here's my problem, Julie. As you move forward and you look at this and you see what's going on and if you know, however this plays out, let's just say that there does get to be some kind of governmental, more governmental funding. There currently is. But let's just say that there's more. The state decides to do some things and they decide to decide to start to fund some stuff and everything else. I mean, at some point there becomes this dependency on governmental, the governmental handout on those things. And in some ways it allows the government to then have uh, control of the market. I mean, what if that money just they said, OK, fine, we'll take your money away. And you've built this whole thing. You built this lifestyle up. You've built this, this the whole system up, and everything else. And then they say, "Well, we're gonna we're gonna pull back on that because for whatever reason, whether it's punitive or whether it's just lack of money or whatever, that's a dangerous position to be in because now you've put the whole economy at risk because people have become dependent. I mean, that's the problem with building dependency on government." is that they continue to be dependent, and in fact, it increases that dependency over the course of time. People can't imagine what it would be like to be without that uh, that dependency on government. 
Yeah, I see. Well, I saw that a lot in Juno on lots of different issues. So right now, um, and, and I think I see, we see that with the daycare, in my opinion, the reason why there's articles calling it a daycare crisis is because the feds gave daycares a ton of money through COVID. $50 million came through here to help support childcare centers that were struggling and parents that were struggling to you know, make ends meet. Well, this year, well, so last year was about $108 million in grants. This year in the governor's budget, it's about $59 million in grants. So now we've, you know, they're, they've been cut in half. And so now it's a crisis because just like the schools, they had this, the, the COVID money coming through and now they don't know what to do. Um, about, so the grant, the way the, the childcare grants is there's a federal, uh, there's a state match. So the UGF, I think it was around $8 million uh, on the state side and, you know, $59 million on the Fed side. And so I think you're, you know, there is a danger in trying to, you know, prop up the industry only on federal dollars, but I'm, I'm using the, the, uh, the, uh, I don't know, the environment, the crisis right now to try to see if we can find innovative solutions, not just more government money to fix it. I mean, to me, so like when you see the the a lot of the articles about it, when uh, the governor vetoed the Head Start money, that's all you you heard was like, oh, my gosh, how could he veto Head Start uh, was five million dollars that was actually amended by Representative Edgman. He included the five million dollars. It went through the Senate and then um, the governor vetoed three point five. And so now there's only one point five million. Well, what are they that that's a match. That's for a federal match. That means the Head Start uh, Head Start has to find the rest of the money for the match. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, they 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 will get grants, they get contributions, they do all sorts of things to earn to raise their own money. And so, when, when um, on childcare grants on the House side, it was proposed fifteen million dollars additional. The House didn't pass it; didn't pass it in finance or the floor. Went to the Senate; they passed it, um, and then the, it got cut to seven point five, and that went that went through the 7.5 million went through. Uh, but I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Like, I, because I'm, I'm coming from your angle. If you, if you bloat it too much, it's all government uh, contributions. It can get, it can fall apart as soon as the funding is pulled. Well, and so that's why I'm trying to get, right. you know, the task force has got a well, lot of different uh, people on it. So I'm hoping we can come up with a lot of different solutions than just, and let's, let's face it, the falling, the, the, the reduction, the RIF, the reduction in funding would be the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is government starts ordering things around like, well, now you have to do this and now you have to do that. Brian in the chat room says, oh, well, if you have a you have a daycare at a church, now you got to cover all the religious iconography because maybe somebody's offended or what, you know, you got all these other things that you want to do. And people, you know, at some point, some people will just be like, they'll throw their hands up in the air and it causes a, a riff in the market again because now... They don't want to participate. They don't want to have to jump through the hoops. They don't want to have the controlling of their government inside their their home daycare or whatever else. I mean, 
This is the problem with that interventionalism ideal is that it spreads. It grows. That is the it's not it's not like it's necessarily evil. It's just the nature of the beast. It's the nature of government. And when we become so dependent on it, they could pretty much call the shots at that point. And as a parent, especially a parent that raised their kids all on their own, didn't have to worry about daycare, didn't have to do that. That's kind of a spooky thing. Yeah. Well, so right now about four, I think it was 14% of people that run daycare don't apply for a license because it's just, you know, because it's a headache or maybe they think the government's going to tell them what to do. You don't have to, but like you said last week, the incentive is to get the, uh, the grant money, right? Because you have to be licensed to be able to tap into any government money. But on top of it is, I suspect that a license is pretty important for um, what you know people looking up childcare. They're going to look and see if you're licensed. It affects your insurance, getting your liability insurance. So there's other like this. There's I I I think there's a lot of childcare centers that that get licensed um, because parents are looking for that, not necessarily just to get government money. But they are, and what I, one of the focuses on the task force, task force is all the regulation, untangling this mess of regulation that, as you mentioned, uh, the Katsubu, uh situation, rural Alaska, all those issues with fire extinguishers and the, uh, the fingerprinting, those are real issues that, I mean, that is our problem. Like the, we need to help untangle that. Right. That's a government problem that we could untangle. And it, Commissioner Hedberg um, seems uh, really focused in on that part on the task force to try to streamline licensing and make it easier for daycare business to get that. You know, I, I think you're in the right direction when you talk about incentivizing businesses to be part of this. I mean, if you wanted to offer tax breaks, if you want to do, of course, the pandemic showed us that remote work is a huge deal. If people can remote work and care for their own children at the same time, to mm -hmm. me, those are options that should be explored more and more um, because I think that makes that makes more sense. And it also this should be a discussion about community. This should be a discussion about, you know, the philosophy of community that we have right now. You know, single parents, they should have a network of people that they work with, whether it's their church or their community or their neighbors or whatever else. And instead, we become more and more isolated. And instead of looking to ourselves and to our neighbors and to our friends and family, we seem to look to government more and more. And again, that to me is one of the dangers here. We've got about two minutes. Yeah, I think that that's why that, that's it's sad, but that's why it's so different than when I raised my kids. I mean, our communities were the the families at Little League, the churches. Um, our uh, some of my kids went to private school. Uh, you know, there was in oh, the neighborhood, right? So the neighborhood. I live in South Anchorage, so I'm not in a rural community. But this place is a ghost town during the day. And it's hard to have be connected to your neighbors because not only are they working during the day, they're out fishing or whatever during the weekend. And so it's, you know, it's just difficult to see how everybody, everybody's been become kind of their own island. And this is what happens. You right. know, they. Well, this is know. what happens when you grow the government dependency, when the government becomes the only answer instead of looking around ourselves and coming together. That's part of the problem. And, and, and dependency begets dependency is my point here on this whole thing. 
instead of looking to each other. And of course, they've been disincentivizing the private, you know, the churches and some of these other, you know, other things like that from being part of it. <clears throat> and so some of them, again, just throw their hands up in the air because they don't want all the strings attached and they don't want to do it anymore. And so it becomes, again, more of government is the solution instead of government is the problem. 60 seconds, Julie, your final thoughts on this whole thing here. Yeah, um, I just I, I hope people kind of realize that, uh, you know, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, it's a problem. Uh, the fam there's a lot of families really struggling. And so I'm just hoping on the task force that I can really bring a private or a conservative uh, perspective to it and try to find innovative solutions that doesn't they don't fall on government, but that we all recognize as conservatives that it's important for us to be pro-family here and be yeah. pro things to help families get through and and not just as a with a government solution but whether it's the churches or the schools or whatever that the community comes around this problem and uh, solves it as a community and hopefully make more connections that people would not normally have if they just took it to a uh, took their children to a daycare center uh, Julie Colomb, uh, representative from Anchorage, thank you for coming on board this morning and sharing your thoughts with us uh, on this. We're going to be back. Hold the line for just a second, Julie. we got more coming up. Sarah Montalbano will be joining us from AFP, APF, Alaska Policy Forum. That's up next. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. Yeah, Kathleen says, support and get involved with the Matsu YMCA, their state license for child care. They don't they hadn't taken any money, she said, from the federal uh, any government monies for any of those kind of things. I mean, there are organizations out there. But again, I think what was happening here is that we are being disincentivized, disincentivized from looking for or finding those issues. The answer becomes, well, we'll just look to government for the problem, not realizing that that's just going to exacerbate it and create a larger dependency in the long run. Well, yeah. If you Google child care crisis, every article, everything is saying that we need more public funds to fix this problem. And I just that's not where I'm looking. It's, it's, it's just not. I think there is. The other thing you'll see, too, is that everybody wants to expand Head Start. I do right. not support that. So right. Head Start, I met my foster son. He was in a Head Start program. It was a great program. Um, most of Head Start, um, it, most of those kids are not only low-income kids, but foster care kids. The state's already in charge of them. And so I think the Head Start has a role. I think they play an important role uh, for the foster care kids and low-income kids. But they they focus on connecting families with services. Um, so. Uh oh, we lost Julie there for a second. Subsidies. Sorry, we lost you for a second. You said so what? So so they so because Head Start wants to connect families with services. That's OK. So now we're really helping the family become dependent in many, many different ways. Um, and I know that with foster care kids, low-income kids, some of that's really important, but I, I'm not interested really in expanding Head Start. They, they, they play right. a role, but that's I, that to me is not the solution for childcare. No. It's, well, and, it, and I think it begs a deeper conversation, again, about, you know, how, when you've got 50% of a community as a single-income household, it begs a deeper discussion 
about the family unit, uh, about mm-hmm. the philosophy of that, about, you know, finding ways for people to connect and be part of things together and do that kind of stuff. Um, because that's, again, you're right, but that's part of the problem is it is the single incomes it is the single family units that are driving a lot of this conversation. I think the double family units could again, make those decisions for themselves. Uh, they may have family here. They need to make those connections. We need to, we need to think outside the box on this. And it just seems like the easiest lever to pull is always government. And that's, that's the problem. Yeah. And that's what the narrative is in the media. If you pay attention, there's there's been like a, a article about childcare at least once a week, sometimes more in the ADN. I, I mean, it's just really pushing, pushing uh, public funding. And yes. uh, like I said, government has a role in solving this because they've become part of the problem. Right. But they're not the full solution to what we need to do with our communities, with our families. Um, and, and getting the churches involved again in what families are struggling, uh, with. Yeah. Or funding or supporting that, uh, black market, you know, the kind of thing, like you said, the communities of, you got a neighbor that is willing to do it, slide her a few bucks or slide them a few bucks every, every week or whatever. I mean, that's what I would be taking advantage. I would much rather have my, my kid in a home of somebody that I know and trust that's not state certified than I would versus, you know, again, all the bells and whistles and hoops and everything else, probably because one, it's cheaper. And two, I know them. That's the, that's the thing in in the long run. I mean, if if the, if the market, if the market cost is $50 a day and I can, I could give Judy down the street, 25 bucks a day and she's happy, I'm happy, then no problem. That seems to be a better solution, but that's just not a solution that many people want. They want the government seal of approval and the stamp, and they want those government monies to be spent on that. So, well, and 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 just to be fair, I don't think that's a solution a lot of people have in front of them. Like I said, my neighborhood is a ghost town during the day. There isn't a bunch of stay-at-home parents hanging around looking to watch children. Now there can be a network of that, and Representative Galvin and Finance actually put. Fourth an amendment, it was like $250,000 to help uh, small in-home daycare um, get their business off the ground if they wanted to get licensed or if they needed, had some things they wanted to do um, to set up a daycare in their home and the governor vetoed it. But I think it's it was just, you know, just looking to see how can we incentivize people who are staying home with children to say, hey, why don't you open your home to maybe three or four kids in the neighborhood? How do they get that word out if they don't know their neighbors and you know, how they make, how do they connect with, with the sure. person that's probably living three, three doors down they've never met. Sure. So, well, that's, but that's, that's part of the problem. Got. Three doors down that they've never met. That's part of yep. the problem right there. Right. Uh, and you start talking about taking in 50, 70, 25, 70, 50, $75 a day, 20 days a month. Now you got a pretty substantial secondary income that you yeah. can take care of. All right. Yeah, it helped, it helped us a lot to yeah. have for me to take in the neighborhood kids. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, Julie, thank you so much. It's good to talk with you. Thanks for being part of it today. We look forward to you. Send me your send me your phone number and I'll text you next time so you'll get the email sooner. <laughs> send just okay. email me your message thing. We'll get it done. Thank you I so much. I appreciate it, Julie. Appreciate you coming right. on board. Thanks, Michael. Have a great day. Uh, Sarah Montalbano is in the green room, ready to go here. We're less than a minute out. Uh, good morning, Sarah. How are you doing this morning? 
Good morning. I'm doing pretty well. Long time no see. Yeah, no, it's been a little, it's been a hot minute. So let's get ready to uh, talk about these things. We're coming up on it here. So I'll, I'll, I'll pull you back into the green room and we'll hang out here in just a second. Sarah Montalbano, our guest. We're going to uh, jump into it here. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Like and share, like and follow. Let's do all those things. Here we go. Hour two is dead ahead on The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense Radio. in its holster we haven't gone anywhere i don't understand check out the michaeldukeshow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast welcome to the party pal the, the michael dukes show the greed and the entitlement is astounding to me what more could you want from a low budget radio program This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Yep, live around the world on the interwebs at MichaelDukeshow.com. Links to the audio-only stream, links to the podcast, links to our social media sites on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, where we simulcast the show each and every day. Welcome back to the program. Hour two of this Monday edition of the show. I hope you had a great weekend. I hope you are rested and rejuvenated. That's is that a word? It is a word. Uh, we're ready to go. Uh, we're jumping back into it. We just finished up with Julie Cologne talking about child care, government run, mandated, funded child care. Uh, I think that's a slippery slope. It's a whole I mean, we could discuss that for a couple shows. Maybe we'll get more into that later on. But right now we're still going to talk about the children, but we're going to move over into the realm of education. Joining us for what we like to lovingly term Montalbano Mondays is our guest from the Alaska Policy Forum. She is uh, their uh, chief uh, uh, educational analyst. It is Julie, uh, excuse me, it it is Sarah Montalbano uh, from the Alaska Policy Forum, and she joins us this morning. Good morning, Sarah. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How about you? Well, it's I'm doing good. It's Monday after a short week and a long weekend. I'm still trying to it's going to be hard to get back in that groove. I just the emperor has not gotten his groove back. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Sarah, uh, yeah, I want to talk about a couple things. Obviously, we want to talk about the budgets and the vetoes. We want to talk about some of the other educational components that are coming up. Um, I also, again, sent you that article about the new study uh, about teachers and needing higher wages and things like that, so we can discuss that. But I know that AFP has also got some events going on that you wanted to highlight, so let's kind of get that, I mean, not out of the way, but let's get that out of the way first, and we'll talk about that. So tell us about these events that AFP has got coming up, and let's, uh, let's discuss it. 
Absolutely. Alaska Policy Forum, we're really excited to put on a, a worker freedom summit for public employees. Uh, there's going to be two events. The first is going to be in Anchorage on July 19th, Wednesday, July 19th, 6 to 7 p.m. Uh, the second is going to be in Wasilla, July 20th, uh, same time. Um, Registration is required, so I've got the Eventbrite links. I can send them to you, drop them on your Facebook, whatever. Sure. Um, you'll hear from natural national experts uh, in public employee freedom rights. And so we know the Janus decision five years ago, uh, almost to the month, um, reaffirmed the fact that public employees have a, the right to opt out of their union, uh, that they don't have to pay dues, that they don't have to pay agency fees, which are, you know, basically dues, but you're not actually a member of the union. Uh, but many public employees are not aware of their rights. Uh, so this is really targeted towards them, but anyone's welcome to join us. Just register at the link beforehand so we make sure we have enough snacks. Yep, and I'll be posting those up on my Facebook page here uh, this morning so that you can go out and take a look at that. Again, the Janus decision uh, was landmark and monumental, but still Absolutely. many states, including Alaska, have struggled to find a way to incorporate that. Uh, of course, the unions have fought tooth and nail anytime anything's been tried to have been done from the governmental side to bring that forward. They have fought it, they fought it tooth and nail, but essentially you do not have to pay any kind of fee to a union to participate in this state. Um, and uh, again, a lot of people just don't know it. So this will explain to people how they can opt out, how they can avoid those things, you know, the pros and cons of it. And then you can decide whether or not you want to participate in that, right? Absolutely. I think a lot of state workers would just rather have the money in their pockets right now uh, when we're talking about inflation as high as it's been. Uh, so this is an event that will hopefully get you the information you need uh, in order to do these things. In Alaska, a lot of unions have an unfortunate practice of setting opt-out windows so that there's a really narrow window of time during the year in which you can send them the letter and say, I want to opt out, and they'll actually respect that. Um, so there's, there's a lot of nuance, a lot of intricacies that you hear from these experts about. All right. And so that's going on July 19th in Anchorage and July 20th in Wasilla. And I will again post those up on my Facebook page if you want to do it. Or you can just go to alaskapolicyforum.org. And I'm sure they've got splashes everywhere up there where you can go take a peek at that and talk about those things. We'll mention it again at the end of the hour, but that's uh, that's the big thing that's going on here. Um. Let's talk about, uh, I guess, first and foremost, the big thing was the governor's vetoes, uh, which uh, you, I was reading this article this morning uh, for folks here over the air. And I'm, I don't know if you heard that or not, but basically talking about whether or not, uh, well, it was the whole issue about Carluck. And then the quotes from the mm -hmm. Kenai Peninsula, or excuse me, the Kodiak Island Borough uh, School Board president where he was basically saying, uh, oh, this is the most criminally low salaries, that there's been zero increase to education. It's been six years of, of flat funding and, and all these other things, which, again, a lot of this is kind of the misnomer. You and I have talked about that. Yes, mm -hmm. the BSA has remained static for six years. It hasn't remained static for much more. It has it gone up. But public education, one-time pay and all this – it has been a year after year. There's been millions and millions of more dollars spent on this. So talk about that. And then let's talk about the governor's veto of the increase to the BSA. Absolutely. Uh, one of the articles I've written recently uh, looks at this tool called Project Nickel. Uh, you can just type in projectnickel.com. 
um, we looked at this a few years ago, uh, but I wanted to re-examine it. Schools are spending so much money per student, and I, I cannot find a better way to phrase it than that. Um, you know, some schools in the Anchorage area, they're doing, you know, $13,000 to $19,000 per year. Uh, there could very well be more that I'm not seeing. Um, but that tool will let you look up a specific school, not just see a district average. Uh, so that's very important, I think, for our statistics here. Um, rural schools are spending exorbitant amounts in part because they have, you know, higher operating costs and, you know, more difficulty retaining teachers and things like that. But some of these places are spending, I, I think I looked at the ADAC school in this blog post, $86,000, almost 87 per student for each of its 15 students right. every year. And th this is really a remarkable amount to spend. Um, and I think putting it in context of the BSA helps. Um, the, even the increase that the legislature was proposing, $175 million comes out to, you know, about $640 in the BSA. That is not a lot compared to how much you're already spending on these students. Uh, so I'm not saying it wouldn't make a difference, that it couldn't avert, you know, the drastic staff shortages and, and all of these things that they're talking about. But this is this is a, a relatively small increase uh, to the, the vast amounts you're already spending. And again, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think the average in the state is what, 19,000 or something? If you average it out across the entire state, 19,000. Um, mm -hmm. per student. <clears throat> and so when you look at it, you think, oh, 620, that's not a big deal. But again, based on how the BSA is factored, 620 is just the beginning. It's not the, that's not the full amount, right? Exactly. Because it's all mul yeah, it multiplies it's, out. It's multiplicative uh, across everything. So 620 is not much. Um, the, the cutting of that, basically cutting it in half, um, mm -hmm. has, you know, oh, it's a crisis, you know, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. But still, it's a significant increase in the long run. It is. And it's schools are still getting $87 million more million than they were should have been planning to get. Um, so the, one of the main points I've thought about here is that, you know, schools have known for a while that this is going to be a problem. They've been plugging the hole with a lot of these COVID federal funding that is one time. So they've they've either, you know, done some extra hiring that they wouldn't have otherwise done with these funds, or they've used these funds to support positions that wouldn't have otherwise been supported. And now we're reaching this fiscal cliff uh, that they really should have seen coming. And they're relying on the legislature to plug these gaps. And I I think about it this way. I think about it this way. If I was anticipating next year getting a 10% raise from Alaska Policy Forum, and I instead got five, you know, I would be making lifestyle changes now. Like I wouldn't be counting on that to fund purchases I'm making right now. Um, it, you know, it's very much something that I think school districts should have started to be making these budgeting adjustments and finding ways to cut where they can um, instead of, you know, having this, this massive concern about, you know, we're going to have to cut staff. We're going to have to do, you know, all of these really ridiculous things. Um, because you've seen this coming. Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> look, historically, Sarah, yeah. we know that this is we know that this is part of the game, right? We know that this is uh, if we create the crisis, then we can we can exacerbate the crisis. This reminds me of the old saying that piss poor planning on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part kind of thing, right? Yes. 
as you yeah, said, the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the fact that they knew that this was that a lot of these things were one-time funding mechanisms, yet mm-hmm. they built a spending pattern based on one-time funding mechanisms, and then clutched their pearls when that money goes away, and they say, "Well, now we need it," kind of thing. I mean, this mm-hmm. has become this has become part of the game, really. The game, and this is the same thing. This is the same reason why we always have the the school budgeting process and the and the teachers contract uh, time frame always aligns so they can clutch their pearls and say if you don't fund the the school districts then we have to lay all these teachers off and everybody gets a pink slip and it becomes a crisis i mean this is part of that whole model at this point i believe so and there's there's so many districts that have been plugging the hole with these federal funding uh, funds and there's a lot of districts that are still holding on to it. You know, there's some districts, and I uh, will have a piece coming out really, really soon, uh, looking at the updated COVID federal, federal funding numbers. Uh, and there's some districts that still have up, upwards of 70% of this funding left. Um, some districts, you know, are at zero. They've spent it. They're, they've, they've plugged the hole as much as they can, and that's it. Um, but, you know, Anchorage School District, they still have 41%. And that is $75 million. So it's like, are you are you planning on, on putting this out over the next year? Because these are going to expire. Um, so it's, it's really something that I think is, uh, you know, responsible budgeting would have required right. you to think about the best case scenario, which is the legislature gives you lots of money, but also looking at the worst case scenario in which you don't get anything more than the foundation formula. And so they're still getting $87 million more than they would have otherwise gotten. Um, and I, I think it's really important to keep that context in mind. Well, this is, again, again, the the whole the piss poor planning idea of you mm-hmm. should be basing your budgets based on the worst case scenario. That's exactly I mean, if more money comes in, then you can be happy about it. You'll have a surplus. You can do some extra things that mm-hmm. year or the following year. But betting on the best case and then crying poor mouth when it doesn't show up. But it, it, again, it's worked. See, that's why they keep doing mm-hmm. it is because it worked because people and the news media, again, is complicit. I mean, one of the things that's never mentioned in any of these articles when they talk about BSA and all this other kind of stuff, they don't talk about the fact that there is no guarantee that any of this money is going to actually make it into the classroom. You had an article up here a couple months mm-hmm. ago that we had you on the program about that talked about the administrative versus the teacher balance, the teachers in the classroom versus the administrators. And you've got some districts where they've got you know, two administrators or three administrators for every teacher that's in there for a smaller, really kind of most of them are a smaller number of students. Our administrative overhead is now consuming the lion's share of most of these dollars that are going on there. Exactly. And and what really has concerned me and upset me as I've been looking at this legislative session is that, you know, there were attempts made in discussions of actually increasing the BSA, making this a permanent increase. And and there were accountability measures introduced. There were amendments saying, look, we've got to find out where this money is going. We need more transparency. Uh, We need to use a portion of this to actually provide instruction. We need to say, okay, you know, a certain percentage has to go to classroom costs. And and that's, that's what's really astounding is because throwing it in this general pot isn't going to produce the improvement in outcomes that Alaska students really need. It's just, it's just going to get absorbed elsewhere. It's going to get spread out right. uh, and it's not going to actually make the difference. 
Sarah Montalbano is our guest. She's the education policy analyst for the Alaska Policy Forum. We're going to continue with her in just a few moments. Don't go anywhere. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Don't forget, you can always join us on Facebook if you'd like to join the conversation in the chat room at facebook.com slash Michael Duke Show. Back with more right after this. Listen to by more staffers in Juneau than any other show. Because their bosses told them to. And after what they just heard, oh man, they're going to be pissed. You're a bad, bad man. The Michael Duke Show. I am a bad, bad man. Yes, I am. <laughs> uh, that's that's the thing to me, Sarah, I guess, to come back to it, is that they see that this policy they see that this program that they're doing they see it works they mm-hmm. see it reaps the rewards so i think that's why you've seen a lot of this foolish foolhardy spending where they've taken one-time funds to build up more personnel or to pay salaries or do everything else to take the money that would have gone to salaries and spend it on to create some other program now or whatever else and then they're shocked shocked i tell you when the money runs out and now they're in crisis mode. But I think at this point they do it because they know that if they squawk loud enough that the legislature is going to bend over backwards or fall over themselves to do it because nobody is really learning the ins and outs of what this education funding does. And so they just know that we've got to take care of the children. Nobody's talking about the $20,000 per kid that's being spent or anything else. or the fact that it doesn't end up in the classrooms, nobody in the mainstream media is talking about the imbalance between administrative and classroom, you know, teachers in the room talking to the kids kind of thing. Nobody's talking about those things. Yeah, it really concerns me. And it's, it's one of these things that we see, just so, so poor outcomes for kids. And then it's blown off as, well, that's just a test score. And there's more to life than test scores. Um, and that's, that's it's just test scores are just part of the proof that this isn't working for so many of Alaska's kids. Um, and it just, it, it disturbs me that this political game is played so much on the backs of children. Like this isn't for the kids, it's for the adults in the room. Um, and it's, it's, it's upsetting. That's what I'll say. <laughs> well, and, and let me ask you this is again, as an education expert, is it upsetting to you to read some of these newspaper articles? And again, this whole thing about, um, uh, you know, about the fact that there's been it's been flat funded, that there's been mm-hmm. no educational increase that we're behind. I mean, you've pulled the numbers. You've looked at the numbers. You've you've analyzed them and crunched them and looked at them. I mean, it's been a sign in 20 years. We've had what, a 35 percent increase in education costs in the last 20 years. Yes, and I'm really impressed you've you've recalled all my numbers. Um, <laughs> but it, yeah, I'm a, it's I'm it a product like of, there's so much. I'm a product of public school, so it should be surprising <laughs> at that point. Go ahead. <laughs> oh no, it's just it's it's remarkable to see the spin that's put on it because it is always placed, like you've said, in this well, think of the children uh, aspect, um, and I, I I see such urgency and such. Um, you know, such a lack of concern about outcomes as really 
you know, emblematic of, of this process that just isn't serving kids. Uh, it's, you know, absorbing an incredible number of tax dollars. Um, and it's just, it's not producing actually good things for kids. What you mean, the education industrial complex, that it's really more about making sure that the, that the industry itself survives rather than whether or not they're develop, delivering a good product to the end. You know, who could believe it? To the end Who user? could believe it? I mean, <laughs> anybody who, if you looked at just the scholastic outcomes, just the, 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 the NEEP and, and the other scoring, AK star and all these other scores, and you look mm-hmm. at it and you see that we are continually in the bottom. In the bottom, 49th, 50th, 48th, 49th, 50th, over and over and over again, and yet we spend more than almost any other state in the country on these things, somebody would have to go, well, that just doesn't seem right. That just doesn't seem right. What, what, you know, how do we fit? But like you said, any time that there's any discussion on things that would, you know, any kind of accountability in these bills, boy, you're lambat. Why do you hate children? Why do you hate do you hate the children? Because that's not how we work. We don't work on accountability. Which why is why are more people not just up in arms about that again? I think they see that they're well, my kid's doing okay. You know, they don't see it as something that is, you know, necessarily a problem for them to fix. And I don't blame them because right. this, you know, education bureaucracy that is across the nation, not just in Alaska, it's huge. It knows what it wants. All right. Sarah Montalbano is our guest. I, I feel a vein in my head throbbing for some reason. It makes my uh, blood boil. <laughs> I know. I just, it's so frustrating to watch this. Um, all right. We're going to continue our discussions with Sarah and we'll talk about the impact uh, of the cuts from a, uh, from uh, APF's, uh, uh, you know, kind of point of view. And then maybe we'll get into this whole discussion about teacher salaries and other things from this other article in just a minute. Sarah Montalbano. Uh, the Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty Base, Free Thing and Radio. Let's go. The Michael Duke Show. Seriously humorous with a pinch of intellect. <laughs> pinch of intellect. Sorry. That is humorous. Here's Michael Dukes. What are you trying to say? I mean, it's got a little bit of intellect in there somewhere. I don't know where. But it is humorous. If nothing else, that's for sure. Uh, the Michael Duke Show continues. Sarah Montalbano is our guest. She's the education policy analyst for the Alaska Policy Forum. And she has all, she's been doing some good writing. If you are not following her over at alaskapolicyforum.org, you are missing out on discussions of education. We were just talking during the break about uh, the, you know, kind of the mainstream media's role in all this. They really have become, instead of, it's become advocacy instead of actually investigative, instead of looking at the numbers, instead of, you know, the every story talks about how, well, education funding has been flat. Well, for the BSA, it may have been flat for the last six years. That does not mean that there have not been increases in educational spending. You talked about and you went back and actually analyzed the education spend for the last 20 years and found that there's been a significant increase. In fact, a 35% increase in education spending on top of all this, like we were talking about in the last segment, the malfeasance and the and the you know the the poor planning on their part of using one-time funding to create stuff and all this. But there has been a 35 percent increase in funding 
Yes, it's it's really undeniable when you look at it. Um, just just that this this increase has happened over the past twenty years. It has exceeded inflation. Um, that that school districts have been counting on this money. Um, they've got massive infusions of COVID federal funding uh, a few years ago that are going to be expiring soon, um, and they just haven't made responsible decisions with it. Well, and again, the thirty five percent is state funding. The whole the COVID yes. money, that's all like money in the couch, right? That's all found money that yeah, had nothing to do with it. Yeah, that's totally <laughs> yeah, that's totally different than the thirty-five percent that the state has increased the funding. Then they got all the COVID dollars from Uncle Sugar on top of it mm-hmm. all. You know, and so again again, if you want me if you want to ask me for more money, you want to ask me for more, you gotta show me what you've done with what I've given you already, kind of thing. And there's a reticence, there's a hesitancy. They don't want anything that has to do with accountability. Anytime any legislator brought up, well, that's fine, we could do some things, but we want to put some accountability measures in there, they start squealing like stuck pigs. They start, you know, crying about how could you? Why do you hate the children? Why would you want us to be accountable? The test scores don't matter. It's a product. You're producing a product. The product is a, is an educated child. If the product is fall is is defective or fails the Q and A, so to speak, at 49 percent out of 50 states for math and reading and science and whatever, that's a that's a huge problem. I, I completely agree, and I think you know so much of this deflection about outcomes, you know, shows up in the well. Test scores are just one aspect of of whether we're successful like are we producing you know well-rounded healthy kids like are, are are we and it's like no we should be talking about are these kids learning how to read in your classroom are they learning basic math skills right um and you if you aren't able to show even that i mean i think you know less than a third of alaska's students are testing proficient in these things in the NAPLA, as you said 49 49th out of 50 states. Um, so it's it's really remarkable that this is all deflected. And it's like, we're not talking about, you know, are the kids, you know, happy and, and enjoying themselves in school. It's, it's, you know, these are basic skills that they need to be successful in, in later life. And those just aren't being taught very right. well. Let's talk about the veto itself and the effect on what's happening. You mentioned it a little bit earlier, but break it down for us, especially from your view as an analyst for the policy forum. You know, the governor's veto um, uh, did you, you know, would you support it? Is it something that's good? Should he have left it in? Should he have vetoed the whole thing? You know, what, in your opinion, as an analyst and looking at all these numbers and, you know, everything else, what, you know, what is your, what is your position on, on the governor's veto itself of the BSA cutting it in half folks, not cutting the whole thing, but cutting it in half. What is your position? It would be hard for me to take a position on on something so political, but I do see, um, you know, education funding that isn't linked to better outcomes or more school choice. You know, this is, you know, definitely a problem and it needs to be addressed properly by the legislature. I mean, this one time funding is not a solution to the problem and it leads to these squabbles. Like if you want to have more funding for education, it really needs to be put through the regular foundation funding formula so that it's permanent. And in this this kind of one-time discussion, um, you know, it's still 87 million more dollars than school districts would have had. And right. I, I think that's something that they ought to be thinking about and be grateful for, um, that, that, you know, they'll be able to plug at least some of their budget with this funding. 
Um, but it is it is definitely something that needs to be addressed, and it's going to continue to be a topic of conversation, uh, just because you know we we need to tie this to to improving outcomes for Alaska's children. We know that this uh, topic is obviously we're halfway through the session, right? This is a this is yes. the this is the first year of this session. Um, mm-hmm. In January, I'm sure we're going to come back, and the full battle charge is going to be. We're already seeing it. We're seeing every day there's a new story about the lack of education or student funding or childcare or whatever. It's, I mean, this is going to be a big issue coming up. Um, what is, you know, what are your thoughts on the upcoming session and how we're, I mean, we're going to be rehashing this battle again, right? Mm-hmm. It's going to be really interesting to watch. At least I can say that um, with, with certainty. Um, I think they're definitely priming the the discussions to lean towards this, you know, really, really concerning um, really deep concern about the level of funding that we have right now. Uh, I think it's very interesting that there um, there's been calls for a special ses- session to override the veto. I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, but it is, you know, something that needs a permanent solution. it's It's not something that is productive to rehash this every session. Um, it, you know, kicking the can down the road the way the legislature has done with the one-time funding is better than implementing more funding with no accountability. Uh, but it is not, you know, a permanent solution. All it guarantees is we'll be talking about it next session and next session and next one. The accountability is the huge part, right? I mean, <clears throat> from your perspective and from, the, I mean, this is, if you guys were recommending something, if Sarah Montalbano was queen for the day, that would be the highest recommendation is having some accountability in there. Would the classroom, mm-hmm. would the direct, would the directive to have a X number of dollars or X percentage hitting into the classroom also be part of what you're talking about? It, that's certainly one approach. I personally think that could be a little hard to enforce. Uh, so, you know, First and foremost, there has to be more transparency in how schools are are being funded and how they're spending that money. Uh, I think that's really obscure when we're only talking about per student levels at a school district or at a school. You know, we're not seeing, you know, this school spends $100 on printer paper for each student. Like we're not seeing really granular things. Um, so we need at least a way to determine, you know, what is instruction? What is administration? You know, what dollars per student are going to the principal? And where's who's going to the classroom? Who's going to materials and textbooks in the library? Um, so that's, that's, I think, one of the first things that I would recommend. I'm a huge fan of transparency. Residents of Alaska need to know where their tax dollars are going. Uh, and I, I think, you know, honestly, legislators don't know. Uh, they don't have any better window into this than the public does uh, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, so th- I think that's the first priority. The uh, You mentioned, of course, the administration and, the, and the, you know, the different things. I mean, that's part of the process that we have problems mm-hmm. here is we got 54 different school districts, all with the same duplicative overhead and everything else. Um, would consolidation be something that uh, that you have analyzed or looked at? I mean, where is, you know, we've got like this, for example, Hawaii has one school district for every, you know, <laughs> on eight separate islands, geographically separated, everything else, one school district for the whole thing. I'm not advocating that for Alaska, but man, we could consolidate, you know, a bunch of different school, have five different school districts and we would eliminate all of that overhead from the duplicative, you know, from the secretary on down to the executive, to the vice principal, to the superintendent, to everything else, all of those things could be removed. And that would be a huge hit on overhead, right? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't have a position on it because I haven't, you know, really crunched the numbers of what this would look like. Um, I, I do have to say, you know, administration is a, a rather large absorption um, of, of these staff funds. And there's, there's some schools that have really taken an innovative approach. I was going to talk about this when we were talking about teacher retention, but it's, it's an important thing to mention now. Um, you know, first of all, charter schools and correspondent schools are able to do, you know, a lot of the same education in an innovative way for a lot less in funding. I mean, IDEA, uh, I think Project Nickel in this this post, I, I look at IDEA in particular as a correspondence school, they're spending less than $5,000 per student, including the allotment that parents get, 2,500 or so. Um, so that's that's one of the things we can look at um, is just looking at, you know, way, ways to reduce the cost while delivering, you know, the same quality of education or better. Um, and then the second thing is, you know, a lot of these innovative models have the flexibility to do things that will, you know, improve non-monetary factors for teachers and, you know, reduce costs along the way. There's a charter school in New York City um, that I'm, I may have mentioned before here, but they are able to pay a starting salary of $125,000 to their teachers because they've eliminated most of the administrative positions and they're distributing that workload just a little bit to each teacher. Um, you know, the principal at that school is also the seventh grade math teacher. Right. Uh, so I think there's some really innovative approaches that we can talk about, you know, to get the funding to the teachers who are doing the teaching uh, instead of administration and support services. Um, and that leads us actually to our next discussion, which was this article from the Beacon talking about a study that says if you want to hire and keep more teachers, it should be, you know, that they need higher wages. And you, of course, just pointed out the prime example of if you eliminated a big chunk of the administration, there would be money freed up to then increase those salaries and everything else. Uh, give us your thoughts quickly on on that, though, that idea that somehow it's only the salaries that's holding things back. I mean, first of all, I want to point out, as I did earlier in the program, this is not strictly an Alaska problem. This is a there is no. a nationwide teacher shortage um, and Alaska is feeling it. They've always had some problems. But, you know, as you look at this and you look at the article and you look at the analysis, is that the only way you're going to get more teachers? Is it a better environment? Is it more, you know, is it a, a better retirement system or is it less overhead? Uh, is it less oversight? Is it less administrative interference in the classroom? What is it, what is the solution? Hard topic to take on briefly. Uh, what we know. Well, in... what we can do is we can uh, we're up against the break. So let's sure. I'll let you percolate on that during the break and then we'll Sounds come back great. on it and you can have the last eight minutes to discuss it. How about that? So we'll uh, Done. continue. Damn. See, that's how she's she's so companionable and nice about it. Uh, Sarah <laughs> Montubano, Alaska a Policy Forum. She's the education policy analyst. We're going to discuss this. We'll talk about that idea that somehow it's only the salaries that are holding things down. Uh, she offered, she just offered you one solution. That would not be popular with a lot of the educational industrial complex, of course, removing all those administrators. But it's one solution at least. Let's uh, continue on. we got more coming up. The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty-based, Free Thinking Radio. Broadcasting live through a series of tubes. Allowing all of these entities. 
to provide streaming stuff going on on the, on the, the internet. Well, it's kind of hard to explain. Sorry. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. All right, Sarah Montalbano continues with us. Sorry, I didn't want to squeeze you into a corner there. I looked up and realized that we were up against it, so that's good. Because <laughs> It's just such a fascinating topic. It's it, just so hard to say, here's the solution. It, it <laughs> is. It is a fascinating topic because, again, that's the answer. You know, here's the problem. We're continually looking for a simple answer for a complex problem. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's continually what we got. And of course, the vast majority of people who are, you know, barely paying attention to the news, they read the headline, maybe they read the first paragraph of the story and they feel like they've got the answer. And unfortunately, it's always it's always dumbed down to, well, they just haven't they just haven't increased the education. They just haven't done this. They just haven't done that. And people are like, oh, yeah, of course. Well, we care about children. So we should support that. Um, never looking at it any deeper. And I guess that's that's the human condition. I guess that's probably mm-hmm. the way it's always been. There's always been a smaller percentage of the population that's been fully engaged on many topics and issues. And the vast majority are just kind of, you know, burbling along. But it is frustrating to watch because th- this becomes the whole narrative, that shortened, untrue, unrealistic I paint picture that's being painted right now by the news media is – you know, again, it's not the truth. It's not that, or at least it's not the whole truth. Sure, there's been zero funding on education on the BSA, but there's been an increase over here, plus all the federal dollars, plus this, plus that. And oh, by the way, mm-hmm. they're producing a substandard product, and nobody, no mainstream media outlet is really picking up on that and talking about it from both perspectives. Even if they weren't advocating, even if they were just pointing it out to say, opponents say, X. Nobody's calling Sarah Montalbano and saying, Sarah, what's going on here? Right. From the nobody from the news media is calling you and asking you those questions. Yeah. And that's, I think, a really important role for Alaska Policy Forum is to look at the facts and point out the the inconvenient ones. I mean, it's it's been a really fun thing. Um, And the the second thing I will say is you reminded me of the, you know, the the story, uh, the general um, example. Of, of some fellow who, who reads a newspaper article in his field of specialty and says, wow, that is just nonsense. And then he turns to the next one and reads it and trusts exactly what it says. <laughs> so it's like when you're an, an expert in these things, right. or if you've been paying really close attention, you will be able to spot some of these things. Uh, but there, it's just, it's, it's so hard to, to really fit all the nuance into a newspaper page. Um, you know, an online article now, I suppose. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's that's even if you're trying to to put an honest perspective on it. Right. Well, that's the thing. It's it's gone from being, uh, I guess, not investigative, but I mean, again, it, it's gone to advocacy journalism. There, mm-hmm. you, you read these articles and you read one, and there's only one side being talked about, and there's only and and the and the language in it is always, oh, woe is us. Why are we mm-hmm. failing so bad? Why are we doing these things? And there's no quotes from the other side saying, wait, we're spending more than almost any other state in the nation on a per capita basis and we're failing. Why is that? Mm-hmm. You know, nobody wants to hear that. I mean, you know, nobody wants to hear that that it's in, until we can admit that there's something wrong, we can't fix it. Right. I mean, I've I've likened it to the. Uh, uh, I've likened it to the whole alcoholic or the drug, you know, the drug person who's got the the, yeah. the condition. They have to hit rock bottom and admit that there's a problem before they can fix it. Here in the state, it's like, 
oh, well, if we just had more money, we could fix it. What you're doing with the money you've got is not working. So how is more going to fix it? We're going to fail faster? I mean, is that the question? I agree completely. And it's it's not, you know, so much that you're you're proving that you've, you, you can do it and it's that you need to show improvement before we give you this money. We just need to understand, you know, where is this going? How is it going to really help the children in your care to be educated? Um, and it's it I would love in one of these these articles to hear from a parent who says, you know, look, I, my kid is not getting what they need at this school. Right. Uh, and I, I think there's just there's so much of this that is lost when we're we're talking just about budget numbers and administrators and we're interviewing, you know, the school boards and the union reps and, and everything that it's this is about kids having the basic skills they need to do well in 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 society once they've once they've passed through this education system. So we lose so much of that. Right. Well, and I think we boiled it down uh, many times in this program. You've done it in your articles. Uh, Harold even is right here in this and saying, basically putting it in simple terms, too much overhead displacing the classrooms there. That's the simple. Yes. And that's what we've been talking about. Too, too much. You've got too many chiefs and not enough Indians to be politically incorrect. That's exactly what it is. You've got all this administrative. Co- I mean, since I was in high school, uh, mm-hmm. When I was in high school in Fairbanks at Lathrop, there was, I think, 35 or 40 teachers, and there was like seven people on the administrative staff, right? Maybe That's eight people. And some of those teachers did double duty, right? So it was yeah. both of them. So, I mean, in, in the last 30 years, it has gone from, you know, 10% or, or 20% of the, of the personnel are administrative to now 50 or plus percent are administrative. And you wonder exactly. where all the money's going. If each one of those person costs a hundred thousand bucks a year, that I mean, all right, we're gonna get back into it. Here we go. Jumping back in, the Michael Duke show, common sense, liberty based, free thinking radio, Sarah Montalbano, our guest. Let's do it. Sarah Montalbano continues with us here from the Alaska Policy Forum. Uh, I asked her a hard question right before the break, and uh, she was a little panicky about trying to answer it really quickly. Uh, So, again, there's this article that's now been shared by the ADN and others. It's from Claire Strempel over at the Alaska Beacon, and it's talking about a study from Matt Berman at UAA that's saying to hire and keep teachers in remote Alaska, school districts need to pay a lot more, which is basically – what we've been hearing about not just rural Alaska, about all Alaska, right? But again, this is not just a state problem. Nationwide, there's a teacher shortage and everything else. So your thoughts on whether or not it's strictly salaries or benefits or whatever else, what is the answer to that teacher retention? You said this was a longer topic, so I wanted to give you the floor here for the last segment. I appreciate it. Teacher retention is fascinating, and it is such a convoluted problem. The first I will say is this is, again, a national problem. I don't think Alaska is particularly um, more affected by this, except perhaps in those really rural areas remote. Um, The second is that teacher shortages are usually usually concentrated in a few specific subject areas that are harder to hire for, you know, like the science, technology, engineering, and math, you know, science teachers and math teachers and, uh, you know, special education teachers too. Um, It's, it's, 
compensation can make a difference. Like I, I will not deny that. Um, you know, that is that is very important, but there are also non-monetary things. And I think this article mentions them briefly. Um, I'll chip in a few myself, you know, treating teachers as professionals in their in a profession uh, is really, really important. Um, you know, teachers also need a path to career advancement that doesn't involve leave, leaving the classroom for administration. Uh, I think a lot of teachers see, you know, the, their only chance for a really big pay raise is to go be an administrator instead. And that takes a lot of really good teachers away from what they really love to do. Um, you know, a second thing, very important working conditions and the disciplinary environment. I think this is applies probably more in really urban school districts, but, you know, students are getting unruly and teachers are starting to be, you know, worried and concerned for their, their physical safety and things like that. Um, and that they're just managing to try and keep, keep kids in their seats, um, that they are not able to actually teach. And then, you know, uh, finally, I think a supportive and stable administration from you know, the, these, these um, you know, administrative uh, groups within the school and the district. I think teachers need to be given, you know, a lot more autonomy in a lot of ways than they get currently. Uh, and I think, you know, in a lot of schools, it feels like, you know, when, when the administration is pitted against the teachers, that's not a great work environment. You're going to want to leave. So I, I will leave it at that with Room for follow-up questions. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think you're not wrong. And again, that whole discussion, I mean, and you have an example. This is not like what you're talking about is pie in the sky. Again, you talk about the the charter school in New York where they're paying teachers a starting salary of a hundred and a quarter thousand dollars a year because mm-hmm. they've eliminated a lot of the overhead and shared some of those duties out. If you want a career path, uh, we don't want good teachers to be, you know, their only choice to make more money is to then move into the administrative side and things like that. We've got to find ways for that. We've we got to find ways to make things matter. The disciplinary mm-hmm. issues, I, I saw a video the other day. I remember who sent it to me. Uh, somebody sent it to me. It was like a TikTok video or something of a teacher talking about her day in the classroom and how she was a music teacher and, you know, she described all the incidents over the last 10 days. And, I mean, they were kind of, you know, crazy, like uh, horrific, you know, fights and everything else. And then she said she cried at the end because she said, and I was told by all my other teachers that they were so jealous of me for having such a good class, you know, kind of thing. And you're like, what the, what's going on? It's remarkable. Yeah. And I mean, I don't blame them for leaving when it's, it's treated like this, that they're just required to try and keep order, but they can't do anything about it. Um, you know, so I, I, I really do sympathize with that. Uh, it's, it's something that, you know, I wouldn't put up with it either. No, I mean, it would be a, it'd be a hard thing. I mean, you, if you did not have the opportunity to fix the problem, and you just had to endure it, I can see why mm-hmm. there's a teacher you know, problem. Because if you go mm-hmm. in there and you can't discipline, you can't keep them straight, you can't, you know, you're not getting the support. Again, this mm-hmm. is a very complex issue. And looking for just yeah. a simple, you know, tw- tweetable solution for a complex, uh, complex issue is just not going to do it. Now, there are some pieces, you know, a requirement mm-hmm. to have the majority of the money's going into the classroom, a reduction in the overhead, I mean, a lot of those things, maybe consolidation of school districts, all of those parts and pieces can help, but it's going to be a very, it's going to be a long-term complex solution. But again, we've got to admit that there's a problem before we can address it. I agree completely. And it's it's really one of these things that this charter school had the flexibility to do 
uh, its its administrative cuts and to really you know pare down the the number of admins that they needed, um, you know, so that they were able to raise these salaries up to you know I think this study said you know some rural districts might need you know. $120,000 in starting salary. Well, this charter school is able to do it for 125. You know, there, there are options and ideas and lots of really innovative things happening. They're just not happening in the traditional public school system. Um, so it's, it's something that, you know, we need the flexibility in order to experiment on these things. You mentioned idea. Um, and, uh, I don't know if you did it on purpose because I'm, my family is one of the charter families from idea. We were the first year, I think there was 25 or 30 families the first year. We were one of those families and, uh, we have put all of our five children. In fact, now this, my son just graduated, my youngest son just graduated. So they've all been through idea. Um, and it was a fantastic program. A fantastic mm -hmm. program. Teachers at your beck and call. You needed a problem. You had a problem. You make a phone call. Now that teacher may be handling 90 students or 100 mm -hmm. students, but because it's one-on-one, -on -one, they love it. The teachers have always been exemplary. The staff has always been exemplary. We had pieces and parts and equipment if we needed it. We had computers. We had all those things. And yet they were doing it for a quarter of what they're spending on every other student in the state of Alaska. And I think if you look at the idea testing scores, you'll see that statistically they are higher and it could be Raven, it could be Cyberlinks, it could be any other program, but we're just talking about idea because that's what I've experienced it in. Um, their numbers are much higher than the average. I mean, why aren't we looking at programs like that and saying that worked? Why don't we apply that to other models? Probably because you'd lose a lot of the administrative overhead. There may be fewer There may be fewer teachers uh, in the mm -hmm. long run. And, and so the question to me becomes, is this really about great outcomes for the students? Or is this about making sure that we keep the max number of people employed in the system? It's hard to determine, you know, intents and outcomes and, and things like that. But I, I do think it's really the correspondence program in the pandemic nearly doubled its enrollment and it's still you know 40 percent elevated over what it was so a lot of families tried this and liked it and they're sticking with it um you know i think there needs to be greater education about the correspondence school uh, programs um i think you know knowing it's an option and you know finding ways to help make that happen for a lot of parents would be helpful right um you know they they've got the flexibility to do this and i i would bet you you know, the teachers at IDEA are very satisfied with their jobs too. They're not, you know, having as high of a retention, you know, high turnover um, as, as some of these other districts are experiencing, uh, you know, probably just because it's such an innovative model and they are able to actually do one-on-one -on -one teaching with students. You right. know, it's, it's a lot more different it's a lot different than, you know, lecturing at a class of 30. Right. Um, you know, I imagine it's a lot more satisfying. <laughs> oh, we have the same contact teacher for 10 years. 10 years yeah. while we've been down here, we've had the years. same contact teacher. Don't um, get that in public schools. Yeah, you just, yeah, you just don't get that. I mean, they know the kid. They know the problems or the challenges or the dreams or whatever the kid, the goals that the kids want. They've known it for years, and they helped pull those things together. It's an amazing thing. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Uh, we're coming down to the end here. Again, Sarah, final thoughts on this, and then let's hit on the uh, – Let's hit on your leadership classes here coming up on in uh, the next couple of weeks here. Let's talk about that. So, but final thoughts on this subject before we move over. 
I appreciate that. Uh, teacher retention is a really complicated problem. You know, when we're talking about uh, salary increases do help, uh, pensions help a lot less than you would think. Um, you know, and there's there's just a lot of really complex factors and a lot are non-monetary. So we need to think about that when we're talking about that solutions. All right. Are Let's, you ready for ready. my next announcement? I'm ready for right. hit us one more time here on the big thing for the Worker Freedom Summits. Absolutely. So uh, please join us July 19th uh, in Anchorage, July 20th and Wasilla for our Worker Freedom Summits. Uh, we're really interested in making sure public employees know their rights. Uh, we've got some national experts coming to join us and talk. Uh, registration, please do register. We want to make sure we've got enough uh, snacks for everybody and that we're, we're keeping track of, of things here. Um, the second announcement I'd like um, to, to just mention is the Alaska Leadership Academy. We are um, we're in our second year of, of uh, helping sponsor this this academy. Uh, any Alaskan is eligible, so don't you know exclude yourself based on you know some some reason you've thought up of in your head. Any Alaskan is eligible. Um, you know there's sessions every, throughout the year. Um, you know, talking about the Constitution and free market principles, as well as getting, you know, some really practical things like media training. Right. Uh, due dates for those applications, August 1st. So we're, we're coming up the 20 days or so. Um, so please get your applications in. Maybe I need to attend. It's on-camera media training and constitutional and free market principles. Maybe I need to be there to learn some stuff. <laughs> I think you'd enjoy it. To learn some Apply. stuff, right? To, to get right <laughs> now. Uh, Sarah Montalbano uh, uh, from the Alaska Policy Forum. We appreciate this. Quickly, about 90 seconds here. What are You You said you're working on something right now. Give us a tease of what you're working on so people can be ready to go uh, read it up on the site. Lots of fascinating things. We're going to have our COVID funding dashboard. So if you want to see exactly which districts have how much money left, uh, that will update will be coming very, very soon. Uh, we've also analyzed the Senate's um, BSA increases and all the opportunities they had for uh, accountability there. Um, we also talk about charter schools and, you know, how these are public schools and how they work. Um, that's another piece coming up soon. And then uh, as the ongoing research, I am still working on outcomes. I'm still working on funding. I've got some interesting data sets I'm looking at right now. So, well, it's Stay always you always fascinating. You always bring out some interesting points and you uh, always bring up some some good stuff. I'm really interested in seeing the dashboard to see how many of these districts who might now be crying poor mouth may actually have millions of dollars sitting there that they need to do something with. Mm -hmm. I would love to, I, I, I'm going to love to see the breakdown on that. Sarah Montalbano, Alaska Policy Forum. You can find him again at alaskapolicyforum.org. Thanks for coming out and joining us. We really appreciate you. Appreciate all you do. Thank you so much for having me. All it's right. always a pleasure. Hold the line for a second. Folks, we are out of time for today. Tomorrow's Tuesday. Brad Keithley, Chris Story. Wednesday, State Senator Mike Schauer. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. All right, one final bite at the apple there, girl. What are you gonna what are you gonna tell us? Are you gonna give us the, the nugget of wisdom on your way out the door here? What what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, all the wisdom leaves my head when you ask me that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I, I I really think you know this is this is one of the really interesting media media issues to watch. I don't know if you know this, but I interned at the Wall Street Journal 
opinion page last summer. Um, so I got to kind of see the workings of that, you know, from from an internal perspective, um, you know, watching the, the narrative you know, grow around this education funding thing is really important. Uh, and that you can always come to us uh, to see some some facts and some numbers about how this is working out. And boy, howdy, like I said, you will never get a call from the local papers to ask you uh, some of this. It, it, it's amazing. I mean, the narrative is being crafted in front of our very eyes. And I called this 10 months ago when this whole thing started and they started talking about education and the benefits, defined benefits. I said, this mm-hmm. these are the, this, this is what they're going to build their fort around. And, and this is what the news media is going to come to them about. And again, I would just love to see some journalism that's somewhere in the middle. I mean, you got the Watchmen and you got Must Read on the one side, banging away from the right. You got the ADN and the Alaska Beacon from the left. I would just like to see somebody in the middle say, well, this is what this side said. This is what that side says. You be the judge. Where is that journalism today? Where is that journalism? It's just, it's not even there anymore. There's a newsletter I subscribe to um, that you might appreciate. It's called The Flip Side, and it does exactly that. It doesn't editorialize. It's got two columns. It says the right the left and it takes ex- excerpts from each of these news articles on different topics so i was like i like seeing that from a national perspective alaska could use that <laughs> yeah no the flip side i actually have read some of those they have got it's, it is fascinating to look at it from both sides that i mean i try and read from everywhere just so i can find some kind of common ground somewhere in the middle about what's going on you know uh, everybody's got their agenda. Can we pick through it? It's going to be crazy. All right, Sarah, thank you so much, my dear. Appreciate it. We will see you sometime in the near future. Soon. Yeah, well, we can talk COVID funding next time. If All you right. Like. That, great. When, as soon as your article comes out, we'll have you back on. That'll be I'll that'll let be. you know. Thanks so much. All right, Sarah Montalbano, our guest. Folks, we're out of time. we got to go. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense Radio. We will see you tomorrow. Have a great day. Shed our terrestrial radio skin, and now we are slimy lizard internet people. It's the Michael Duke Show.